Naomi Meyer. I'm content manager of LitNet, and it's a great honor for me today to introduce you to Bill Nassen. Bill is one of South Africa's leading historians, and he's presently a distinguished professor of history at the University of Stellenbosch. Previously, he was a history scholar at the University of Cape Town for more than two decades, where he was head of the Department of History. A historian of modern South Africa who specializes in the history of war, Nassen has also published widely in other fields, including education, politics, and oral history. The War of South Africa in 2010 was shortlisted for the Alan Payton Nonfiction Award. Bill has held visiting fellowships at the University of Cambridge, the Australian National University, Yale University, University of Illinois, University of Kent, the Tr and Trinity College in Dublin. A man of the world, an historian uh, with a wide scope. Books by Bill Nassen include Abram Esau's War, The War of South Africa, South Africa at War, The War at Home, and a quick interruption here on my side. It was because of the War of ho at Home, and I conducted a, with, an interview with Bill on LitNet that I became an interview with Bill on LitNet that I became aware of his work, and he was a special author for me to interview. He wasn't simply a, non, a stereotypical non-fiction writer, he was writing like a novelist. And also, he also wrote a world, uh, the book World War I and the People of South Africa in 2014. Welcome, Bill Nassen. Thank you, Naomi. Um, the reason for our being here today is due to the publication of his book, History Matters. Bill, maybe we can start with uh, your telling us what kind of a book History Matters is. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, this is the point at which I am always reminded of my late father, you know. Genoeg, Bill, hou op nou. That's enough. Um, so I think that, I don't know, I'm a... I'm a sort of Gemini and I'm easily bored and distracted, especially when I'm on my own at a desk. And for much of my life I've admired historians who have a single topic and can work on that for most of their lives, you know, the history of tin mining in Kelsrafir or something. And I've never been much good at that, so I've always scratched around. And I grew up in I grew up in the, um, I was born in 1952, and um, in my sort of reading years, I grew up in a house which didn't have a lot of books, but we had a lot of collections, edited writing, collected books um, of that kind. And some of them were given, um, were given to us as a family by this um, odd man, a Scotsman called Mr. Shaw, who remembers a very young primary school boy and one of the many ironies of my life is that although I grew up in an entirely unilingual English-speaking household, my, my father was born in Swellendam and he was actually an Afrikaans teacher, although he never ever spoke Afrikaans at home. Noit, never. And, um, and so Mr. Shaw used to come to my father for Afrikaans lessons because he was a magistrate in the 50s and he was fearful of losing his job because of affirmative action of that time, and he needed desperately to learn enough Afrikaans. This is a very long-winded way of saying. But what he used to do was that he used to bring these collections of G.K. Chesterton or um, the stories of Saki and people like that 
Um, and so I grew up with these books, and I love them actually because you could dip into them and walk around with them and put them down and and pick them up again. And I've always liked books of um, books of that kind, uh, but I never thought of I never thought that my scribblings were worth putting together into a book of that sort until um, I was sitting with Tim Cousins, the great literary historian of South Africa, who very sadly died. Um, last year, and the very last thing he wrote, in fact, is the foreword he very generously wrote for this book. And uh, Tim and I were sitting at the Francia Literary Festival, and he said, come on, Bill, you lack of focus. You spend most of your life, you know, yiridang, daridang, you know, you're doing a bit of this and a bit of that. Why don't you think of putting it all together and persuading a publisher to bring out a book of your selected... Um, selected writing. So in a way, um, the book is a sort of menopausal, late life um, collection of the sort of books I read when I was, was very young. And the other books like this, say William Boyd's Bamboo I Like and um, Richard Hoggart's, um, I forget the title, but things of that kind. So it's not an autobiography, but it's a collection of the various things I wrote many years ago and some I've written more, more recently. So um, it's written for myself, for enjoyment, I think. And hopefully for one or two other readers. Maybe more, if I'm lucky. Um, um, and Bill, what kind of topics do you cover in this book? And where did it all start? <laughs> um, it all started with the school magazine, which is the very first thing I... Um, my very first publication was the school magazine, which I was involved in founding in 1969, 1970. So um, they had to publish me, because I was the editor. Um, and then I wrote a very boring, serious piece. Um, about dissent, and you, you'll read it in the book if you ever get around to looking at it. Um, and so what it is, it's a sort of, it's a sort of partly chronological, I mean, I must say it's not a memoir. I mean, there are some pieces in it that are flashes or moments of memory, which I've written specifically for the book. But everything else is over quite a long period of time, from 1970 up till very recently. Um, uh, previously published, but I've rewritten them for, for this book. I've got rid of any boarding references and footnotes. Good time. Good for that, actually. Once you get to a certain age, you can live without references and footnotes. Who worries, you know? And you can read the, orig the originals to find the, 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 the references. So they are a kind of mixture of they kind of book reviews and there's some poetry... Um, not by me, I can't write poetry, but there are a couple of poems which are embarrassingly about me. Um, and then there are essays and lectures and book reviews and review essays and ruminations. So it's a sort of, I don't know, it's like a lucky dip or an unlucky dip, depending on, on your view of it. But and, it's, yeah. And, and um, Bill, do elaborate a bit about the poem about you, if you wish. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, okay. There's um, there's a there's a thing called a there's a thing in the book about a daffodil, and um, it was when I was a part-time student, and I had uh, I um, was um, enrolled in something called the South African Committee for Higher Education, which is the the early 1970s, and you either had um, you either had sort of UCT tutors. And it was correspondence. Um, you, did, um, you studied by correspondence, and it was through London University, and you had local tutors, or you had visiting academics who were here to do research. 
And this is period around 1971, 72. Um, and I had this man called uh, Wally Mills, who was a Canadian and was working on Christianity and missions in the Eastern Cape. So he was doing his PhD through the University of um, California. And um, I used to go to their flat in Tamboskloof um, for these weekly tutorials. And his wife, who was a very interesting, willowy, interesting sort of Canadian um, woman who was also a poet, and she suddenly discovered that I was interested in Leonard Cohen and Margaret Atwood and Canadian, Canadian writers because of the peculiar education I'd had. Um, and so she used to sit in the lounge um, while the two of us had a tutorial at the table about something really boring, you know, like Charles Fox and the English East India Company. And she would lie on the couch and then chip in saying, oh, that's so boring. Why don't you talk about something more interesting, like some 18th century novel or other? And then there was one week I went and she'd gone. She'd just disappeared, just vanished. And I was whatever I was then, 19 or 20. And I didn't, um, I don't know, you're not an adult really. And I didn't really think about it. And then one day, um, months later, I never asked Bonnie, you know, where's your wife? Have you done her in? Cut her up? Sent her back to Canada? Who knows? Um, and then one week, I walked past the bedroom door, and there she was lying on the bed, and I could see these very distinctive blue stockings and whatever. Um, and when they left, after about a year, um, she was there, magically, you know, out of the hat, and then it was as if nothing had happened. Um, and then about a year after that, I received a collection of her poems, and one of the poems was um, about me and those um, tutorials we had. And it was about whether I ever thought about what had happened to her in that time. Which I realized, not even then, but much later, it was obviously about, you know, depression or withdrawal or something that you only realize when you're fully an adult that you understand these things. So that, for me, was one of the very moving, very moving pieces in a book, which is otherwise quite shallow, I think, because I'm a fundamentally shallow person. And Bill, um, do you want to tell something about a train trip and how you became a historian? Oh, I became an historian. Yeah, I was. Um, um, I sort of left South Africa in 1972, um, and then I studied in Britain, and then I was working uh, in London. Um, at World University Service um, in North London, having a pretty terrible time, the sort of office job. And we were working with uh, Ugandan student refugees and Eritrean student refugees and Zimbabwean student refugees who were all sort of stranded in Britain because their scholarship funding had, um, had dried up. Um, and I worked with two women I couldn't stand. I mean, they happened to be women, but you know. I don't want to get into you know, gender politics here, but they were not easy to work with. Um, so I was very frustrated and cross and fed up. And, and then um, I went to the station one evening and got into the underground, the Northern Line. We all know the London Underground. Got into the Northern Line. Um, and the door opened and a sort of large, fat, boozy man got on and sat down opposite me. And I thought, oh my God, that's John Kenyon. He was the head of history where I'd done my first degree 
at the University of Hull in, in northeast England. A very conservative figure, and he was an historian of the 17th century um, who wrote books with wonderful titles like The Stuarts or The Popish Plot, that kind of stuff. So he was like a 17th century English historian. And I tried to avoid his gaze, and then he kind of stared at me and said, Nassen, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I was in London working. And he said, why are you wasting your time working? You should be doing something like research. Do a PhD. And I said, well, how do I do that? He says, let me tell you. Phone me. And he gave me his phone number, and he got off at the next stop. So I did. And, um, and that's how I became an historian. So he said to me, this is where you apply, and this is where you'll get funding, and I will write the references. So it's all about patronage, you know. It's a story of life. We all know this. So did some So I'm, you know, like that William Hurt movie, The Accidental Tourist. So I'm the accidental historian. <laughs> Otherwise, I might have just stayed in North London and you would have found me on the underground line, eventually jumping in front of the northern line, you know, when I'd had enough. Now, did that also influence the fact that you wrote plenty of your, um, of your work um, from the perspective of the British? Or do you want to say something about that? <laughs> yes. Um, yes, I did. I have written some things. It's a funny thing, actually. I mean, you, I, um, I, mean I sort of went to Britain in 1972. And then um, so I sort of grew up in Cape Town and with, always with this sense of England or Britain in my head, which seemed to be a place that was more open and more free and you know when you sort of your body's here but your mind migrates somewhere else intellectually and emotionally um, and then I ended up not in London where so many people end up but in Hull cold wet damp unpleasant part of northeast England but it was great actually because you could immediately become de-anything, de-racinated, the Yorkshires didn't know foreigners, I mean many decades before Brexit, before the Poles arrived. So you could just, you could become kind of absorbed, I mean you couldn't become Yorkshire, that's impossible as anyone would tell you. But it was, um, it was an interesting experience, you know, that I think that that sense, when I went to England, that, uh, that strong sense of um, of other parts of the British Isles, which maybe you don't get in the same way in the South, so that if you, you meet people from Manchester and then you meet people from Ireland and you meet people from, from Scotland. And when I was there in 1973, 76, doing history, I had these Irish friends, and of course the IRA was very active during that period, and they became quite fiercely republicanized during that period and changed the spelling of their names, I mean, to assert their to assert their Irishness, which was very interesting, actually. And then later, when I left um, my then-girlfriend and I, my long-suffering wife now, um, we lived in North London, and then we lived in Kilburn, and anyone who knows Kilburn is full of Irish pubs and full of Fenians and then full of dynamite and, you know, subversives. And so that was another interesting experience, being immersed in the sort of Irishness of a part of... Now, since of you've, North London, yeah. Since you've mentioned the Irish, maybe if you if you wish, you can maybe tell us something about the Easter Rising from your book as well. Oh, what? Yeah. Um, yes. Um, 
I um yes, I mean I've I've always been interested in in Ireland and I, I yes, I mean I think Ireland is not a, it's not entirely unlike South Africa. It's where you have this don't know what it is, this mix of strong sense of history um, mixed up with politics or historical grievances. So there are a lot of historical grievances of various kinds in this country, and, and but like Ireland in that sense. Um, and then it becomes mixed up with sort of contemporary politics, and then it becomes mixed up with nationalism, old nationalism or, or new nationalism, and it's all a very... Um, not a very pleasant sort of mix. Um, and um, I've, I've had, I mean, I've had links with Trinity College Dublin, um, which is, of course, Protestant historically. If you go to Trinity College Dublin today, there's a portrait of Oliver Cromwell, you know, the great, the great murderer and colonizer of Ireland. And if you go to University College just up the road, that's Catholic. And there's Cardinal Newman Hall. So I was asked um, in 2015 to, um, to give a lecture on the Africana Rebellion uh, and the Irish Rising and to look at similarities and differences between, um, between these, two, um, these two events. And one of the things I remember was I started off by talking about a wonderful Irish historian, a man called Roy Foster, and there was this thaw in the audience. There was this chill, this sort of hostile look from people. Um, this was in Dublin. And it was a bit like, I don't know, like a bar mitzvah pork chop or something, you know. And you just, I just knew at that moment that Roy Foster was the wrong person to start with. Because he was in Oxford, he was in England, and he was a protty. He was a mm -hmm. Protestant. And the people in the audience were overwhelmingly Catholic, um, Catholic nationalists. Mm -hmm. But Ireland is always, yeah. And then when I was a student, I studied a lot of um, Irish writers as an English um, undergraduate. And one of the things in my book, I have a list of, um, of favorite quotes um, at the end of the very end of the book. And one of them is from Brendan Behan, who describes himself as having been um, um, <clears throat> a drinker with a writing problem which is wonderfully Irish, I think. So, so in a way, you're interested um, in the history of the underdog, are you? Is that, am I, am I right? Yes, yes, and, and everybody. <laughs> yes. And, um, and the powerful, too. I mean, I think, I don't know, slightly banal thing to say, but I think that, you know, what, what you can kind of get for, I mean, what does history teach us? And I think that, if there's one thing that history teaches us is um, is the importance of there's no such thing as objective history, but you you have to you have to have some kind of empathy with the people you are studying and writing about, whether they are the underdog or whether they are the top dog and the powerful, because everybody can be damaged, everybody can be hurt, everybody can lose. Everybody can gain. And I think that's very important, actually, to get, you know, so that I've... I mean, there was a time in my life when I wrote a very advocacy, I suppose, partisan kind of history. Um, but I wouldn't write that kind of history now, I think. 
Um, Bill, you've done a lot of research in his, the history of war in general, all kinds of war. Do you want to say something about why you've done that? What all the wars you've, you've looked at, the Anglo-Boer War, World War I, II, anything you've wished him? <laughs> yes, I would always have loved, I would love to study the Seven Years' War, um, but I never will. But, you know, that famous French... Um, French, Anglo-French war, uh, that fame where Admiral Bing, it's a complicated story, but Admiral Bing um, was told by the British Admiral to sail his ship at the French and display bravery. And he said, no, my ship will go down and my crew will die. And so he disobeyed orders. And he was then court-martialed and executed on the deck of his ship in 1782 or something. A man after my heart. You know what I mean? But like General Klopper in Tobruk in, 19, um, in the Second World War, where General Klopper did a similar thing, who's gone down in history as a sort of, quote, coward. Um, but if you think back to that time, was probably trying his best to save the lives of the people under his command. Um, so yes, I mean, I, yeah, I, um, I've always been interested in war. It's an unhealthy interest, probably, starting with childhood and um, toy soldiers and model aeroplanes. Now I've been obsessed with the Second World War for quite a long time, um, and so I suppose I started studying it seriously with the South African War, Anglo-Boer War, when I was looking for a looking for a topic. And so the Anglo-Boer War was something I sort of started on and um, doesn't quite seem to leave me despite my constant efforts to get rid of it. Other Anglo-Boer War historians in the audience will know what I mean. Um, and, then, and then I got onto the First World War. A lot of these things are, quite frankly, by sort of accident. I mean, I had a job at Cambridge. I'd never really thought seriously about the First World War. And then I got this job for a year working on um, a project to do with First World War pensioners. And the job was, if I can, may I? I mean, the job was to do a 10% sample of 600,000 First World War British pensioners who had lost limbs or been gassed or in one or other way been seriously injured in the First World War. And so I got that because it was a job and it was a very messy job. It was in a sort of warehouse and the pigeons had got in among the files and this was in Lancashire. And so everything was a mess, you know, you needed to work in sort of overalls. But I did this job for about a year. And then of course you become completely obsessed and absorbed by the First World War because there's these extraordinary files which contain x-rays and letters from the employers and letters when they die, letters from their widows and extraordinary things. Um, for example, when a First World War veteran died, um, their widows were monitored by the local police to make sure that they behaved in a way which was appropriate to the widow of a hero of the First World War. And the cops would then report them to the pensions ministry, saying, 
Mrs. X has been seen in a pub with a gentleman caller who is unrelated to her and is not her late husband. And she's dishonoring, is she not dishonoring blah, 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 you know, the, a hero of the First World War veteran, and that thought should be given to stopping a pension. That stuff, extraordinary, really. So that's what, you know, and I think it's those, don't know what it is, these crinkly things around the war. I mean, not just the big stuff about the battles, hmm. but, you know, if you take the, um, if you take the South African war, um, you could have, I dare say, um, I'm complicit in this, you know, books about the camps and children and the experience of, um, of civilians in that war. But there are also other things that, I mean, the hundreds of poor children who were sent away by their families when the war broke out. And they were sent to Swaziland and Basutu land and Bechuanaland land in 1899. And when the war ended, they came back. And what did they come back as? Sutu, Tswana, and mm. Swazi. They came back speaking those languages. Yes. Ab having absorbed those culture, you know, because they were very young children. So after 1902, they had to be kind of re-Burized or re-Afrikanerized mm. or whatever. So it became a great, you know, exercise, or a small exercise in mm. social engineering. But those are the things that, yeah. You're all the time writing down individual people's stories, in a way. Um, now, talking about individual people's stories, you mentioned um, a teacher of yours, Dudley, was his surname. Do you want to say something Mr. about Dudley. him? Dudley, good grief, yeah. The book was dedicated to him, Yes. am I right? Yeah. Now, he was, um, yeah, I mean, he was, uh, yes. He's the closest I would back. get to hero worship. I mean, he was this sort of towering um, teacher we... Um, we had at school who technically taught maths and physics, um, but in fact taught everything in a in a Renaissance man person kind of um, kind of way. And they, they, I, can I tell the chicken story? I mean, there's to give an example of teaching, which is really sort of stuck with me. So that um, there was a period when I was about sort of standard nine, and the various things went on in the school. So we would have these periodic school inspectors who would come around, who were basically these old kind of nationalists who had worked in the education department and then inspected schools. Mr. Dudley always used to say to us, when Maneer so-and-so comes, um, be very polite, but do not stand when he enters the classroom. Just make him feel a little bit that he's not that welcome but we'll tolerate him. And it was a great moment, you know. So, so this guy would come in and he'd stand there, wachebeke, stand up and nobody stood. And that was just a little bit of resistance or insolence. Um, but he also had this way of teaching in a, I know it's extraordinary. I mean, you'd get physics and Wordsworth and Shelley and, you know, poetry and physics all rolled into one. And then we had a, very daring uh, boy in the class who said, let's sort of test him. So we're going to try to eat a complete roast chicken. Um, it's in the book, actually. Um, that memory. While he's teaching to see if he reacts. And so this, of course, you can smell it. I mean, this roast chicken was in the classroom. 
and Dick Dudley came in and he started teaching and the chicken was passed around under the desk and we wolfed it down, you know, and he walked around. And then at the end of the lesson, the bell went. Um, and as we were all filing out, because we changed classrooms and he stayed where he was, he said, by the way, next time leave me a bit of the breast. That's my favorite part. <laughs> Which for me is the greatest teaching moment I've ever, because it was gentle but humiliating for, for us, you know. I mean, the moral victory was his. It made, not look, made us look stupid. And we just said, mighty much more. Any, any lesser teacher would have sent us to, you know, detention or something. Um, so you can write about every institution's history, in fact. Is that right? Uh, and how do you know which one is more important, if you think about your school? Um, ah, yes. Well, I think the school wasn't famous for sport. Um, I think that, I mean, I came out of that culture of particular set of schools in Cape Town, in the, which obviously existed before that, but came to a particular pitch, I think, in, um, in the 1960s, where there's enormous stress on intellectual debate and um, the ideals of non-racialism and, um, and on internationalism, on the importance of, um, of, um, of you know, just thinking more broadly and being open to things where that beyond the national boundaries where you were where you were living. Um, and um, I mean, this may be guessing my favorite poem. Can I? Yes, that's can what I, I want to. I mean, Please. Um, we, um, we all belong to something called the South Peninsula Educational Fellowship, which was basically a sort of semi-Marxist socialist um, society, um, but linked to, the, linked, to, linked to my school and to other schools. And, um, and it's, it's that sort of apartheid period where, you know, apartheid in some levels was bad, but it's not an excuse to make it worse than it was. So the odd thing about the 60s is that there was a great deal of censorship, as everybody knows, but it was also a period of low inflation when books were very cheap and lots of things were not censored. So you could go to court news agency on the foreshore and buy, as I did, buy the Penguin Modern European Poets, which is what we were encouraged to buy, to buy these anti-Stalinist, very obscure, Eastern European poets like Akhmatova, Yevtushenko, Voznesensky, and then we'd have these poetry readings on Friday evenings or Sunday evenings um, about, you know, the five-year plans or the struggle of the peasants. After a while, very boring. And um, so I tried to introduce um, what my what the teachers and some other students call bourgeois poets, like Dylan Thomas and Wilfred Owen and English poets. Um, and then I sort of fell in love, loosely speaking, with a poem in, um, in about 1970, which, um, which is not in the book, but which I have bought because I last read this, read this poem out publicly in 1970. And I said to Naomi, this is an opportunity 47 years later, to read it out again publicly, maybe to a less hostile audience. Because I was told at the end of this poem that I'd fallen for bourgeois culture 
and that this poem was about a death wish. And um, it's by Roger McGough, who's one of those hip Liverpool Beatles kind of poem poets of that era. Um, and it's called Let Me Die a Young Man's Death. A chance I've missed, given my age. But. Let me die a young man's death. Not a clean and in between the sheets, holy water death. Not a famous last words, peaceful, out of breath death. When I'm 73 and in constant good tumor, may I be mown down at dawn by a bright red sports car on my way home from an all night party. Or when I'm 91 with silver hair and sitting in a barber's chair, May rival gangsters with ham-fisted tommy guns burst in and give me a short back and insides. Or when I'm 104 and banned from the cavern, the famous Beatles place, banned from the cavern, may my mistress catching me in bed with her daughter and fearing for her son cut me up into little pieces and throw away every piece but one. Let me die a young man's death. Not a free from sin, tiptoe in, candle wax and waning death. Not a curtains drawn by angels born. What a nice way to go, death. Let it be a young man's death. Well, thank you. All I can say is you're you much more appreciative than an audience in 1970 who, um, yes, who gave me a sort of puzzled look, you know, is he demented, is he mad, is he politically suspect? Because he's chosen this over Yevtushenko, Akhmatova, Vozhnesensky. Well, Bill, I have to ask you, talking about that, I have to ask you something about um, something written in your book. Um, you mentioned two medical doctors in the foreword. Do you want to say something about their importance? Talking about a young man's death. Oh, not a young, yes. Or let me not die an old man's death. They saved me from that. I, um, yes, towards the end Let's of... Discuss uh, this. Yeah. Sorry. Towards the end of putting this, this, um, this, um, this book together uh, in the middle of last year, I had, I think, what's called an audio, a cardiac episode. Um, and my bacon was saved by, um, by my GP and um, a cardiologist. So um, the cardiologist has an unhealthy eye for younger women, I've discovered. Um, but that's another story. He's a nice guy, actually. I really recommend him. Um, but I, I, um, I don't know. I, I just, you know, it was coming to the end of the book, and, and I, was, I was actually, I mean, I was actually in intensive care with the, with the proofs, when the proofs arrived. Um, so they kind of, you know, kept me on drips and um, made sure that I take the rat poison and the things that keep me going today. Yeah. Okay, but onto a, a so, slight you know, news. They rock, lives. that's all I can say. About that. <laughs> but onto a lighter topic, you also, in your book you also write about um, other kind of histories like cricket and food mm. and wine. Any of these three topics you'd like to well, say well, something yeah. about? Very no, different I've, always, I've always loved cricket. I mean, cricket for me has been the great 
the game of life, the great moral, you know, you just, yeah, one mistake and you bug it actually, you know, just, you can't, it's not like rugby or football where you can recover, it's just there. And, and cricket is full of the most, for me, the most heartwarming moments. I mean, I remember um, going to watch Western Province play Australia when um, the Australians were touring under Mark Taylor. And, um, and there was sort of Shane Warne, who was, you know, not playing in that match. And there were all these kids with their cricket bats waving to Shane to sign their bats. And he simply gestured. He opened the thing and got them out onto the side of the pitch and played with them. And cricket for me is, yeah. So I've loved, yeah, I've always loved cricket. And of course, I've always loved wine, probably to my, um, probably to my cost. Um, but one of the things in the book is that um, I, um, I did a sort of wine label, or I contributed to a wine label uh, to Boer and Brit Vayner. And they are these two great guys, actually, um, Stefan Gerber and Alex Molner, hence the Boer and Brit, who pr produced this label, Boer and Brit, you know, with the mind of an Englishman, with the armpit of a Boer, how can you go wrong, sort of thing. Very good marketing. Um, and, um, and when I was doing um, an earlier book on the, the war for South Africa, um, there was some publicity around Boer and Brit, so I got hold of them, and the earlier book has a little bit of the, one of the illustrations in that book is um, a Boer and Brit wine. So they approached me um, when they produced um, this new label called Brunghulle Heistu, which was um, wine targeted at expatriate South Africans in Sydney and New York and elsewhere. And it was the, um, it's great actually, and um, not the wine but the label. Um, and um, and it, has, it, has, um, it has the train and it's the world's first wine with luminous paint. It's kind of brivein. So, you know, and I mean you sit outside as Yilvat Donker and then you can see the bottle because the coal the coal in the coal trucks glows, and the windows are yellow, and it's great, actually. And they had a thing from Dana Sneeman, which is the Tamburki or whatever, you know, some Karoo thing. And then they tried to translate it into English, and the English didn't work very well, so they said to me, would I write something in English? So I did something about, something rather predictable about, you know, the train takes you from Colesburg to Cairo, or... Of Swiss. But that was great actually, you know, for me, who, who would not want to be on 20,000 bottles of wine <laughs> rather than 200 books in a gedach? No, definitely, yeah. Uh, now, back to the, um, the, um, the name History Matters. Uh, now, does it? Because um, in the foreword you also write about students burning art in 2016. Mm. And um, does one make history by getting rid of history, you think? Could this no, be a response no, history to history? because you mustn't burn things. <laughs> yes. No, so that's the yes, that's a short answer. The, and no, the, the other mean, question yeah. is, can, can history be wiped out? Um, no, because it has a way of coming back to bite your bum, I think. And the good example is Spain. I mean, in Spain, they renamed all these avenidas, you know, like they got rid of Franco. Um, but in fact, if you go to Spain decades later, locals in Madrid and elsewhere will still refer to those roads by their old names. 
So I think there's a sort of, there's a deep, we don't want to get too philosophical here, but I think that quite often there's a sort of deep undertow in history that you absorb by osmosis and you can spend a lot of time prancing around trying to change the surface, but deep underneath, it's still there, you know. Um, do you maybe want to read your favorite part, any quick selection of something before we open the floor for questions? Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> when I was younger, I, um, I keep saying that, but everyone's, as you get older, you keep saying that when I was younger. Um, when I was younger, I quite often, I often felt that I would like to be someone else. It's like Woody Allen says the same thing. You know? I would like to be someone else, somewhere else. Um, and yes, I think probably I would like to have been Irish, although perish the thought now. Or not Canadian, though. I mean, I wouldn't. I nearly became Canadian because my family <clears throat> nearly emigrated there in 1963 when I was 11. So then I would have been Canadian. How about that? My mm. mother got cold feet. She said it snows. Can't go there. It's too cold. So that was it. So, um, so if you've, I mean, this is this is one. Yeah, this is one of the pieces I quite like. Um, which is about um, the Irish Rebellion of 1916 and the Africana Rebellion of 1914. So I'll just read a little extract from this and then I can stop boring you and you can say much more interesting things. So this is the end of the lecture I gave in Dublin and I gave the same lecture <coughs> at the Frankfurt Literary Festival um, last year. Half a century after the rising, the distinguished Afrikaans historical novelist Karl Skuman concluded that Swart Paspius, Black Easter, was one of the most luminous examples of the triumph of failure in world history. Do I need to start again? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. <clears throat> I'll start earlier then. When it comes to South Africa, and so part of it is about what you remember, what you forget. When it comes to South African remembering and forgetting, there is a brief closing Irish sequel on which to end. Half a century after the rising, the distinguished Afrikaans historical novelist, Karl Skuman, concluded that Swart Paspius, Black Easter, was one of the most luminous examples of the triumph of failure in world history. In his 1966 travel journey, journal, Beruch e die Fremde, a Irse Dachbuch, Dispatch from Abroad, an Irish Diary, and in his, his famous allegorical island novel, Beifakeluch, of the same year, Skuman teased out an analogy between English-oppressed Ireland and Afrikaner nationalist-ruled South Africa. But it was not the easy analogy of old, by which he meant the analogy of the Afrikaner rebellion and republicanism. The oppressiveness of aristocratic England, Skuman concluded, was the 1960s apartheid injustice of white South Africa. Inevitably, that would he predicted, also come to an end. 
Look back to Ireland, he, adv he advised Afrikaans-speaking readers of Baruch Etifremde. Again, it offered a lesson, if not quite as unromantic as that peddled by Danae's rates. Should I say something about Danae's rates? I mean, this I is, yeah. Okay, the Easter Rite. I'll finish this and then say something about Danae's rates and genoeg van mij. That's enough. The Easter Rising of 1916, he warned, had not been the end, it had been the beginning. So there's, this, there's a moment, Danae's rates, of course, I'm sure many of you will know, Smuts's lieutenant, you know, got into bed with the British Empire and was in Dublin to put down um, the, Irish, um, the Irish Rising. And he wrote about this afterwards, and he said that the Irish reminded him so much of his own people, you know, too emotional, too wrapped up in history, too soppy, sentimental, too concerned with the past. They lacked the rationality and level-headedness of proper Irish people in the North, <laughs> the Protestants. And if only, you know, his Afrikaner people and the Catholic Irish would see sense, then we would have a much more progressive, um, progressive future. And of course, there's an earlier story. Um, there's an earlier story about rates, which is during the Afrikaner Rebellion when he leads um, he leads a, a government patrol, and um, and they're out in the Free State in some you know obscure dorp somewhere, and a woman runs out into the street and she says to rates, thinking that they are rebels, says, "Opas mana, the Engelser is here." And what does Danae's right say? Say, pass up, Tani. Once is the Engelser. So, yeah. I'm afraid. Thank you. Now that's all we have time for. But there's uh, maybe one or time for one or two questions. Just have to wait a second for the microphone. Yes. That that poem at my age, I, it's not in the book, so I need it. <laughs> oh. Well, I know we should have it. We should um, we should recite it together over a glass of wine. No, it's it's yeah. No, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. No, it's um, it's interesting. I mean, I loved that poem at the age of seventeen or eighteen, and uh, I still do now. You know, in a in a sort of slightly menopausal post young moment. But yeah, I missed out. That's what it is. I think that's you know. Yes. Any more questions? At the risk of making you self-reflect, I want to know how do you think you'll be remembered in history? Oh, good grief. Um, I didn't plant that question. I mean, that's... Um, yes, I, I don't... I don't <laughs> no, I don't expect to be... Um, I would like to be remembered by the people who knew me and, you know, hopefully liked me. Um, but I don't expect to be remembered by his... I mean, by history, no, because you know what historians do. Historians just make history up. They don't. They don't really make history. I would love to make history, you know, like Churchill or or something. Yes, yes. Mm, no. Yeah, but thank you. Mm. Any last question?
Or was Amela just an only child? I mean, that's another... Which we haven't discussed. We haven't. No, we, we haven't. haven't. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a single yeah. child, so I've got the maladjustments that go with all of that, and I've got a single daughter who's also maladjusted. So, I mean, I had a terrible childhood. I could, she can have the same, I always thought, you know. So at least share it, you know. This one. Why did you come back to South Africa? Um, oh, that's a good... I mean, actually, to be quite honest, I... I came back to South Africa because of Margaret Thatcher. Um, well, I mean, not, you know, not, not directly. She didn't say go. Um, but, um, yes, I mean, I didn't, there were no jobs in Britain. Um, and this was when I'd got my PhD, sort of 82, and there was, there was sort of nothing, really. I mean, I was then married, and I had an English wife, and I would quite, Happily, well, not happily. Ambiguous thing about England. We didn't get anyway. Um, but I would have stayed. Um, but there were no jobs in Britain, um, and there was a job at, the, at UCT through Herman Hillemi. There's a thing, um, and some other people. So that's what that's what got me back. You know, I mean, otherwise, um, it's a weird thing actually because when I was, you know, like eleven, then. The whole family and the rest of them did. So I've got I've got these Canadian and also Australian cousins and so on who've like disappeared. I've never I don't know them. You know they I'm I'm never there. They never come back. So there's a sort of it's a great thing to research. I think for people who still want to do research, unlike me who just does you know shallow journalistic writing. Um, but but the diaspora of the 60s of the people who left. I mean, there were people who left in 49 and so on and then, you know, moved abroad. But there was a big movement here, certainly from Cape Town, um, into Canada and Australia where there were lots of jobs. Teaching. My father was a primary school teacher. He, you know, had a job in Canada lined up. Um, but it didn't happen. Uh, and then, yes, so, I mean, I came back because of Mrs. Thatcher. So, I have her to thank for that. I, I saw Mrs. Thatcher once, actually. Do you want to hear that quickly? At the Mount okay. Nelson, at the Mount Nelson, I was having a dop with my old friend, William Sneemann, who uh, is at UCT in German and Italian, and he was then a Cape Times arts journalist in the days when the Cape Times was a newspaper. Um, and uh, so we had this dop in the in the... Mount Nelson bar, and as I was leaving, there was Mrs. Thatcher, because this was when Mark Thatcher was still living in Constantia. And um, sort of walking towards the door, and a bus had pulled up, and there were dozens of suitcases across the front of the, the front entrance of the Mount Nelson. And Mrs. Thatcher stopped and looked at the suitcases and said, move these now, in a very loud voice. She could have, you know, turned, maybe not left, but she could have turned right and just gone around them. But, you know, yes. So, um, yes. Not as interesting as P.W. Werther, but you can read Litnet for P.W. Werther. <laughs> yes. yes, you can. Thank you, Bill, yeah. for the lovely talk and for the interesting book. Well, thank, thank you. I mean, I must just say it's a great privilege to be here with Naomi, who is a proper writer. I mean, she's a novelist. She's a serious... It's a, she's the serious thing, you know. We non-fiction historians are, you know, do it for you. Know, yeah.